welcome to History Zine, show number nine. This show is going to be, well, the putting together of a show is all a bit of a rush job. I'm going away on holiday to Oudenaarde in Belgium to see the reenactment of the Battle of Oudenaarde, which was in 1708. What we'll be doing on this show is the match to Blenheim, that's uh, in 1704. But next time, instead of actually having the Battle of Blenheim, as we should have, I'm going to do a sort of little jump sideways. Because I'll be over in Oudenaarde, I thought it'd be really nice to try and produce some podcasts actually from the reenactment site itself. So it's out of sequence and everything, but let's see how it goes. Hope you won't be too confused. So anyway, on with the show. This time we have a book review for you and 1704, The Match to Blenheim. We'll start off with a book review. to review a book for you now a review of the latest biography of the Duke of Marlborough this book is called Marlborough England's Fragile Genius and it's written by Richard Holmes now I was delighted when I heard that Richard Holmes had penned this the latest biography of the Duke of Marlborough Richard Holmes has written a large number of books which have been both informative and eminently readable his style is literary without being pretentious You can pick almost any passage from his books and you can read it aloud and enjoy listening to the rhythm of his writing. As a result, I read this book almost as quickly as I might read a novel and was sorely distressed when I turned the last page and found no more. This is a remarkable book, full of vivid imagery and fascinating detail. I marvelled in particular at the way Richard Holmes was able to convey the mad confusion of a battle in such a way that I could picture the movement of the troops and spot the weaknesses and strength of the formations in a way that a good general might do. Quite early in the book we find a description of the Battle of Sedgemoor. This is where the Duke of Monmouth is leading a rebellion of Protestant troops against the Catholic English king, that's King James II. Now, I've often found this battle quite confusing. But there are maps in this book which are obviously helpful, but even more importantly, he talks about troop movements and the effect of those movements, and the way each side exploits the weaknesses of the other. Richard Holmes thinks and writes like a military strategist, which is hardly surprising considering his own long and distinguished military career. He follows the thinking of the military leaders and comments upon their decisions. Having said this, There's one niggling flaw as regards this book, and that's the title. Marlborough, nothing wrong with that bit. It is about the Duke of Marlborough after all. England's fragile genius. Well, I think I can see where he's heading with this bit, but I do think the title's a bit misleading. That title to me implies many things that are either absent from the book or feature too little to be considered a major subject. I read this title and I expected possibly a character study that might show him to be a delicate, sensitive chap who should be at home picking flowers rather than rampaging about the battlefields of Europe. This, I'm certain, is not the case. Maybe the title is telling me he was teetering upon the edge of madness and could have fallen at any time. This also is far from probable. Maybe... Richard Holmes is referring to Marlborough's status as being fragile. 
His political enemies did expend a vast amount of energy trying to tear him down, and he had to devote huge amounts of effort to retain his political power. In fact, they, they did eventually drive him from office, and he was forced to accept voluntary exile on the European continent until the death of Queen Anne. But more likely, I think he's referring to Marlborough's physical health. Marlborough suffered throughout his life from very severe headaches and was often incapacitated by something that was probably what we today would call migraine. Richard Holmes tells us repeatedly of the Duke's intense suffering, but I think if this is to be the prime focus of the book, then I would expect the study of his illness to contain more of substance. I would expect reports from his own physicians, comparison of a symptom chart with the reported symptoms of the Duke. Maybe even a report from a modern-day physician with his verdict upon the illness and suffering of the Duke. I would expect Richard Holmes to bring me evidence of how the Duke's illness affected his decision-making and comment upon what he might have been able to do if he had been a, a little less fragile. So, I've said this isn't really a book about his fragility, but what is it about? I think... This book is a good sort of general Marlborough biography, and it also includes a considerable amount of detail. It's a great big chunk of a book, after all. I would heartily recommend this book. It's a good read. It gives a fine overview, and it tells us a lot about the actions of the Duke, particularly as regards his military achievements. I don't think this could be the definitive book on Marlborough. I think that honour still lies with Winston Churchill's three-volume history of Marlborough, his life and times. But this book is probably a better read than that, and it really makes a fine companion to the Churchill books to balance out some of the bias you'll find there. In conclusion, this book is heartily recommended, although I would still suggest you try to obtain the Churchill books if you possibly can. But I must warn you, the Winston Churchill books on Marlborough are very difficult to find at the moment. So, conclusion, heartily recommended. An easy read, an enjoyable read, a pleasant read. That's Richard Holmes' book on Marlborough called Marlborough, England's Fragile Genius. And so this is our bit on the War of the Spanish Succession. A war between Spain and France on the one hand, and England, the Netherlands, and the Austrian Empire, or the Holy Roman Empire on the other hand. Lots of other countries involved, but they're the main combatants. The year is 1704. Austria faces danger on all fronts. To the east, the uprising in Hungary is spiralling out of control. To the west, the Elector of Bavaria reinforced by France, moves inexorably forward, threatening even Vienna itself. In northern Italy, a force of a 100,000 men under the Marshal Vendôme also poses a threat. The Austrian ambassador in England dogs the heels of the captain-general of the alliance, the Duke of Marlborough, but in truth the Duke needs no prompting from Ratislav. He is well aware of the dangers threatening Austria and also well aware 
that if the Holy Roman Empire should fall, then France could focus her not inconsiderable might upon the armies of England and the Dutch Republic. Needless to say, this was not a prospect he relished. That winter, preceding the campaign of 1704, Marlborough flitted between the various Allied leaders, discussing the possible plans for the forthcoming year. He was purposefully indiscreet enough that word soon got back to France that an attack up the Moselle was the likely option this year. To ensure this story received confirmation from other sources, he laid in stores at Coblenz, which is at the junction of the Moselle and the Rhine, and arranged to meet the Prussian and Hanoverian troops there. So, the cover story was in place. The money had been arranged. 1,700 wagons and 4,000 draft beasts had been hired. Forage had been arranged for the 14,000 cavalry horses and 5,000 artillery horses. A flotilla of boats were in place to transport supplies for the army up the Rhine. Negotiations had taken place with the various principalities along the route so as to ensure trouble-free passage through their lands. Meeting places had been arranged for the troops. 40,000 troops to begin with and 60,000 by the end of the march and those who needed to be informed of the true plan had been so told. In fact, Marlborough wrote to Godolphin on the 1st of May. He said, I am very sensible that I take a great deal upon me, but should I act otherwise, the empire would be undone, and consequently the confederacy. On the 11th of May, Vienna was informed of Marlborough's intentions, and the die was cast. Marlborough was about to take an almighty gamble here. A failure at this point could ensure victory for the French and supply enough ammunition for his political opponents at home to tear him down from his place of favour. He was well aware of this. The Great March began on the 20th of May 1704 from a little town called Bedburg near Cologne. France made preparations to receive this army in the province of Lorraine and Villeroy, under instructions from Louis XIV, shadowed the march as carefully as he could. Elsewhere, in southern Germany, near Ulm, on the Danube, the Elector of Bavaria and Marshal Marsan are waiting with 40,000 men. Their target is to be Vienna, which has only managed to scrape up 30,000 men for its defence. Attempts by the Margrave of Baden and the Habsburg forces to disrupt the preparations of the Bavarian army are not going well. And it seems all too likely that the Elector of Bavaria will oust the Emperor from Vienna and declare himself Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. But, fortunately, Marlborough's march put enough doubts in the minds of the generals of the Twin Crowns that they held stay to their march upon Vienna until they had some notion of his destination. This was fortunate indeed for the plan, as the forces in Germany could have easily been wiped out if the Elector and Marsan had moved upon them early. Meanwhile, the march had arrived at Koblenz, where the river forks. Marlborough crossed the bridge over the Moselle, and then, to the surprise of nearly everyone, including his own forces, he crossed over and began to march eastward along the Rhine. This threw the French into great confusion, and even then, they were not sure where he was heading. 
Villeroy continued to shadow Marlborough with 30,000 men, and Marlborough hurriedly sent messages to The Hague, suggesting that with such a large detachment following him, there could be no serious threat in the Low Countries, and therefore they could spare the seven battalions and 22 squadrons of Danish troops, which were part of Overkirk's force, in Flanders. The Dutch responded magnificently, and soon the extra forces were on their way. Captain Robert Parker, of the Regiment of Foot of Ireland, said of the march, We generally began our march about three in the morning, proceeded about four leagues or four and a half each day, and reached our ground about nine. As we marched through the countries of our allies, commissaries were appointed to furnish us with all manner of necessaries for man and horse. These were brought to the ground before we arrived, and the soldiers had nothing to do but to pitch their tents, boil their kettles, and lie down to rest. Surely, never was such a march carried on with more order and regularity, and with less fatigue both to man and horse. Marlborough paid particular care to ensure the men were as well equipped as possible, and that all was as well organised as it could be. At Frankfort, there was a complete set of new footwear for every member of the army, and Marlborough wrote to Godolphin, the English treasurer, I send tomorrow to Frankfort to see if I can take up a month's pay for the English, and shall draw the bills on Mr. Sweet. For notwithstanding the continual marching, the men are extremely pleased with this expedition, so that I am sure you will take all the care possible that they may not want. Now, it may seem a little odd here that I'm devoting a whole podcast, more or less, to what is just a march. But this march was a thing of beauty in itself. You see, on a march you will get you get a lot of people dropping out through disease, through fatigue, through desertion, as they find the toils of the march simply too much to take. But in this march it was so well organised and the men were so well looked after that the dropout rate was actually quite small. If you care to sort of read around this subject, you'll find the similar match by Vilroy, who was shadowing Marlborough. On that match, he lost ten times as many soldiers through desertion and disease. So this is why I'm spending all this podcast just about just on the march into Germany. I mean, there have certainly been longer marches. I mean, Napoleon's march to Moscow, for example. But I can think of none which brought so many men so far in such good condition. The attention to detail on this march is truly astounding, and Marlborough did all this with quite a small number of staff. There's Dill Carrigan as Quartermaster General, and he would oversee most of the preparations. And there's Cardinal and Davenant, who also played a very crucial role indeed. Anyway, let's get back to the progress of the army. At this point in the march, another bluff came into play, Marlborough ordered the governor of Philipsburg to build pontoon bridges and mass supplies in the fortress there. This gave the French forces reason to believe that Marlborough's destination might be Strasbourg to recapture Landau. And Tallard delayed his march to Ulm in case it was needed to defend Landau. Villeroy also thought Landau must be the target and moved to its defence. Now, you might be wondering at this point what the cautious Dutch was thinking of Marlborough wandering so far from the Low Countries. 
Well, fortunately, Marlborough had considered this and he had a backup plan that had the double benefit of lending succour to the Dutch deputies and giving much pause for thought to Villeroy and the French forces shadowing Marlborough through Europe. Marlborough had a flotilla of boats with him on the Rhine, which could, if needed, carry the entire army back downstream at a rate of about 80 miles a day. Vilroy for a long time wondered if this march might be a ruse to draw him away from the Low Countries, so that Marlborough could double back and join up with Overkirk's Dutch forces and crush the French troops remaining on the Moselle. I mean, such a strategy could quite likely have given Marlborough a great victory, but he knew the greater threat was to the Empire, and while he kept everyone guessing, in his own mind he knew that it was the army threatening Vienna which must be beaten, if the Empire were to remain a potent force in the war. The bluff at Felixburg bought Marlborough little time, and he swung east away from the Rhine, and only then did it become evident that the Danube and Bavaria was to be his target. The elector of Bavaria now found himself in the unenviable position of being the hunted rather than the hunter. The French marshals now saw the gravity of the threat to the elector, and also saw the strong strategic position in which the forces of Marlborough had put themselves. It would have been quite easy for Marlborough to hold them off on the Rhine, with only a small part of his forces, while the rest connected up with the Margrave of Baden, and smashed the numerically inferior forces of the elector. They were caught in indecision, and sent back to their king Louis XIV for instructions, as to how to overcome the difficulties which had been placed in their path. Over the next fortnight it was, couriers rode back and forth between the marshals and their king as they puzzled over the dilemma. The elector saw the danger he was in and wrote desperate letters to Louis, begging for assistance. He made it quite clear that it was in his mind to take his family and seek refuge with the Hungarian rebels if no help were forthcoming. Eventually, on June the 27th, the marshals received their orders. And these are the orders from Louis the 14th. It is then my intention that you, Marshal Tallard, and General Cogni should divide all my troops, which you and they command in Alsace, into three corps. That of Marshal Tallard, which is to advance over the mountains, should consist of 40 battalions of 50 squadrons, which I have chosen in the appended list. The second army, which you command, should advance to Offenburg, observe the enemy, retain them in the lines of Stolhofen, follow them into Alsace, or join Marshal Tallard with the whole or a part, if they move all of their troops towards the Danube. This army should be composed of at least 40 battalions and 60 to 70 squadrons. The corps which Cogne is to command should consist of 10 or 12 battalions and the same number of squadrons, and will safeguard Alsace. The Swiss regiments, even my Swiss guards, will form part of this corps, as I have no intention of forcing them to cross the Rhine against their will. These instructions were not exactly welcomed by the French marshals, but they had asked Louis XIV for his opinion, and they had to abide by that opinion. Now Marlborough. Marlborough met the Margrave of Baden, Prince Louis, at Gros Hepach on the 10th of June, and they were joined shortly afterwards by Prince Eugène of Savoy, who we've mentioned in an earlier podcast. Here the final plans were laid for bringing the Elector of Bavaria to heel. It was hoped that he would be quickly cowed, and seeing the hopelessness of his situation, would withdraw his support for France, and maybe even switch sides back to the Empire. The three generals between them now controlled a force of around 110,000 men. 
Prince Eugène was given instructions to return to the lines of Stolhofen to prevent Villeroy and Tallard from forcing a passage across the Rhine, while Marlborough and Prince Louis marched through the Swabian Jura to Landsheim. From here, they could set out to hunt down the Elector and the Marshal Marsan. Things did not go as well here as Marlborough had hoped. He had not brought with him any heavy cannon, as that would have seriously impeded the progress of the march. He had, however, been promised heavy guns when he entered Baden. These guns did not materialise, and he was forced to abandon his intended attack upon the large Bavarian camp at Ulm. He also had to bypass the stronghold at Lauingen for want of heavy guns. On the 2nd of July, much to the surprise of the garrison commander, Comte d'Arcot, he appeared outside the fortress of Donauworth. This will be what is referred to as the Battle of the Schellenberg after the struggle to command the Schellenberg Heights, which were the key to this position. It was a very bloody battle, but strategically very important indeed. And we'll come to that battle next time. Bye for now.